Majaloka Dipati Sampati Katanjali Santi the Sata Parajaka Jatika Dese to Damam Anukampi Mampajam. Motasa Bakavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Namotasa Bakavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Namotasa Bakavato Arahato Sama Sambutasa Buddhang Damang Sanghang Namasami Yesterday, one of the questions that was asked was, can you tell us a story about Ajahn Chah's attainments? And because Ajahn Chah rarely, rarely, rarely talked about his own attainments or kind of outwardly displayed them, it wasn't that easy to think of a story. A lot of the good Ajahn Chah stories are just little snippets of wisdom. Uh, how we responded in particular situations. Um, yeah. Irrespective of, of um, culture and time and place, he always seemed to just kind of hit the mark. When he and Ajahn Sumedho and a couple other monks first went to England. He said, well, we're going to go out on alms round. And they kind of said, well, you can't go on alms round in London. It's, it's actually illegal to bag on the street. And besides, no one's going to give us any food. <laughs> right? <clears throat> and uh, he said, we're not going for food. We're going for people. And uh, on one of these arms round, apparently, Zero <clears throat> Ajahn Chah, he had a very big stature, but physically it was actually quite short. And Ajahn Somedo physically is huge. So, quite an interesting picture. Ajahn Chah walking first and this huge... Western guy in robes following behind. But apparently on one alms round in London, one of the uh, skinheads possibly kind of assumed Ajahn Chah was a kung fu master. Ran, <laughs> <laughs> ran up and kicked him in the back. <laughs> And Ajahn Chah flew into a roundhouse kick and leveled it. <laughs> no, no, no. And uh, 
the real the real impressive response was you got you know just suddenly out of the blue some guy runs up and kicks him in the back <laughs> he turns around to Ajahn Sumedho and he says hmm, good teaching <laughs> <laughs> Continue on. <laughs> so, in a sense, it's you know that's uh, that's a manifestation of attainment, and in and of itself, it's that's a good teaching because that's something we can all aspire to in daily life. As we walk down the road of our daily life, getting kicked, <laughs> kicked here and there, and uh, and just remembering, oh, how did Ajahn Chah respond in a similar situation when he got kicked? Oh, good teaching, good life lesson. Maybe I can learn something from this. If I learn something from it, then not a problem. It's not a mistake. Now, apparently, Ajahn Sumedho wasn't all that keen on going to the West. There was a group from England who wanted to start monasteries there in England. And I think Ajahn Sumedho from his own account, was very happy to stay in Thailand. He was he was very content with the practice there. Ajahn Chah was still thriving, always always in, inspiring, or you never know what he was going to do. <clears throat> but when the invitation came, then Ajahn Chah said to Ajahn Sumedho, okay, uh, take up the invitation, go set up a monastery in England, in the West. And then for the last 40 years or so, it's been an experiment to see what happens when you take a uh, long-standing Asian tradition and then you try to transplant it into a very different culture. quite fortunate that we had someone like Ajahn Sumedho because <clears throat> not many people could really pull it off. When I, when we started this retreat, I was mentioning how if we if we really think about bringing the Dhamma into 21st century modern culture, then what is that going to take? What is that going to entail? What role do we play in that? It's a very interesting time. I mean, if you look historically, uh, it's unprecedented that suddenly you find all of the major living Buddhist traditions and even some of the extinct ones revived 
all available to everybody at the same time, in the same place, and, and really no situation history where it's been like that. As I mentioned before, if, if we really want to bring the Dhamma into our own lives, then it takes more than just being on retreat. Once a year, twice a year, a couple of ten days retreat every year. Excellent. Excellent. But you know how they wear off. You know, every year... I, I, for three years in a row, I would do this long monastic retreat with Katagiri Roshi. The first time was six weeks, and after that it was eight weeks each time. And, and each, each time was very, very inspiring, and I vowed to keep it going. And then after the retreat ended, of course, you know, I diligently keep the meditation up for a while. <laughs> and then, and then, oh, well... Something happened today, I couldn't quite meditate, and, and then, oh, I got busy, I'm traveling, skip a day, skip a couple of days, before I know it. <clears throat> it's like I'd gotten out of the rhythm, starting to, starting to, starting to get more scattered, you know, the sense of peace, clarity, even the, the, uh, the clarity of insights that seemed so obvious while in that practice situation, it all started to fade, going back to my own habits. So at that time I started to realize, well, it's, at least for me, it's going to take something a bit more thorough to, to make the Dharma continuous in my own life, right? Not just doing a retreat and then, it's like, whew, that was great. Let's party. <laughs> uh, you know, it's going to take um, a whole way of life. So gradually I started to you know, look at precepts and, and sila, and I think much of that came fairly naturally anyways. And uh, this quality of generosity that Becca was just eloquently expounding on, uh, more and more I see how that is such a heart-opening quality and so conducive to sustaining all of the other aspects of the Dhamma. And when we talk about dana, just like Becca was saying, it's it's not just about giving giving money or giving things, but any time that we can give up something that we're holding on to, any time we can give uh, time to help someone else out, time is precious. We're all most of us are pretty busy. But time is precious. We give time to help someone else out. Give time to um, 
pay attention to someone, to sit down with someone, to speak to someone. I mean, that that's a real giving. Give attention to people we care about. Give service. Look at uh, just what it took to put on a, a simple, small retreat like this in the, in the woods. A lot of people gave a lot. Um, the managers did a lot of planning ahead of time. The cooks did a lot of planning ahead of time. Damon helped uh, in many ways, do some carpentry work. Uh, who was the guy who came and helped you, John, to uh, help set up? Um, Jerry. Jerry. So many people, you know, who came and helped supported us on this retreat. You know, and that's really no less valuable than the meditation. If you really look at the whole picture, it's, uh, they're just different aspects of the whole path. But for, for a human mind to really be able to have the Dhamma sink in, they're just um, finding ways that we can help other people. Right? Help support other people's Dhamma practice. Help um, alleviate people's pain in the world, however we can. Right? That's <clears throat> that's a dana. That's a big giving. At our monastery in New Zealand, we run it entirely on the principle of dana, meaning we don't charge for anything. People can come and stay free, no problem. People can eat wonderful meals every day, no expectation of, of payment for that. All the teachings that we give, absolutely free. All the books that we have to give away, they're all for our free distribution. Everything there, we don't charge for anything. It's a great way to undermine capitalism. <laughs> a couple of years ago, John had this hat which was like just this color of my robes. And had a big icon of Che Guevara on it, the uh, communist revolutionary. He gave it to me because it was the right monk color. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I haven't really, I haven't worn it in two years, so I brought it back to give it back to John. So. <clears throat> Thank you.
But it it is a, a very, very different way of looking at the Dhamma. Right? Now, our monastery is able to survive on Dana because we have a lot of we have a lot of people from Asia who are used to that system. We have Sri Lankans and Thais and Malaysians <clears throat> and uh, and they they love it. I am still amazed at how much joy they get from giving. Uh, you know, we we don't we don't do any real fundraising per se. I mean, it's pretty pretty soft. You know, we may say, "Oh, we've got this project going on." You know, anyone who wants to sponsor something is welcome to, but that's about it. And uh, and often, you know, people just have this attitude of, "Oh, you know, we are so fortunate to be able to help establish a monastery in the West. We are so fortunate to be able to um, help build a meditation hall at this time. Oh, we're so lucky." Like amazing, you know, and and the thing is, people who have that that spirit of dana often do have very good meditation, or sometimes not. I mean, sometimes they're just into dana, <laughs> but but they uh, uh, they're usually quite bright, you know, bright, just just. Uh, accessing the joy from the results of making good karma. And I think that's something which is underestimated in the West. Uh, you know, certainly meditation techniques and uh, different ways of liberating the mind and the higher aspects of the Dhamma are all undeniably important essential. But, you know, I really haven't met that many um, people who are able to actually manifest very, very high states of meditation and liberation, except maybe in, in Thailand or other Asian countries. <clears throat> but for Westerners, not, not that many, although Usually we're pretty good at the theory, <laughs> which is a start, kind of a way of, of allowing it to sink in, driving inspiration, and, you know, often we're, we're I think, justifiably hesitant to have faith in something that might smack of religion. So we better really have confidence in something before we're even going to, you know, have faith in something. So it's understandable that we want to understand the uh, the whole path, how it all works, before we, you know, really dedicate ourselves to it. Before we're willing to kind of bow to a shrine or do chanting and what's all that about. And 
make sure that nothing's done blindly, just like the Buddha recommended. But I think some of the foundational qualities are sometimes um, under-encouraged because they're not so spectacular. It's not like liberation of emptiness. But uh, just my my experience of uh, meeting people who regularly, on a regular basis, uh, do things to to bring up dana in their lives. God, they can just be so joyful. Some of the <laughs> some of the old women who bring food to our monastery, they get up like four in the morning to start cooking so that uh, all the food will be ready to drive out to the monastery and offer. And, you know, it's a really big deal for them. And uh, there was one woman, she says, every time she comes out to the monastery, she's so tired because the night before, she was so excited that she was going to go to the monastery the next day, she could hardly sleep. (laughs) She says, so any time she comes to the monastery, she's always sleepy. She can go to sleep. But she was one who has excellent meditation, you know, really bright. And um, she says, you know, when she, she comes to me and asks, she says she, she's got this problem in her meditation. You know, she sits down, and pretty soon, so much happiness starts to well up that she starts to laugh. And <laughs> you know, such a problem. <laughs> Such a problem. People would kill to have that problem. <laughs> but uh, you can just just see it in in some people. You know how that. You know, don't underestimate the simple but very powerful blessings that can come from giving, from devotion, from helping others, from being kind to strangers on airplanes. And another aspect of it is the recognition that we're actually doing something good and allowing ourselves to feel good about it. Because I also know a number of Western Buddhists who are really do a lot. They give a lot, they help a lot, <clears throat> they practice a lot, and they still have no joy in it, <laughs> or very little, or not as much as they could, because something in them just doesn't quite allow themselves to really enjoy it. Or um, there's something in it in them, it's a bit like, well, I have to do this, I should do this more like penance, and it would be, <laughs> you know, sinful if I was too happy doing it. <laughs> <laughs> so these are some of the challenges that we 
from a different culture uh, face that many of the uh, our Asian counterparts don't don't have. Um, I haven't known or no tie that I can think of is really hung up about uh, not being joyful about giving. You know, they're just like. They love to give, and the more the merrier. You know, if they suddenly get uh, get the idea, oh, let's go to the monastery today, they call up all their friends and say, okay, great, let's go to the monastery today, good, grab some stuff. And they just have a great time doing it. <laughs> you know, and, and that's even enough. You know, just, just, just the happiness that comes from that <coughs> is very satisfying. Being able to give wholeheartedly. You know, it's actually a Buddhist meditation to reflect on the good karma that we've done. Right? It's a different type of meditation. It's more like a, a meditation that uses reflective thought. Instead of just being in the present, we can actually bring up good things that we've done in the past with with the knowledge that you know, this is good karma and bringing up that uh, a positive memory of a helpful, kind, generous, compassionate thing that we've done in the past uh, is right effort as well. You know, bringing, bringing that up into our consciousness and allowing ourselves to feel the happiness that comes from that. One of the uh, leading Thai teachers a number of years ago, he's passed away now, he came to the West and was giving talks and question came up about guilt and uh, said, what? You know, I was translating and said, what? What's that? And uh, <clears throat> tried to explain what guilt was. <laughs> he said, have you done anything wrong? I said, no, then why do you feel guilty? So, even when we uh, make good karma, then it may take an extra step of reminding us, hey, Buddha said, (laughs) merit is happiness. Good karma is happiness. It's not like... um, Everything has to be painful and dry, right? Well, this is Theravada Buddhism. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's dry. It's kind of like Lutheran Buddhism. <laughs> it's just, you know, supposed to be devotional, but not like, you know, we're not like Baptist Buddhists. You kind of get all happy, happy, clappy. <laughs> 
uh, kind of like Lutheran Buddhists, just dry. <laughs> but uh, just remember that it's actually uh, it's natural and a good sign to feel happy when we give and help. <clears throat> and also realize that giving and helping is a two-way street. If someone, if someone's making all the good karma of giving, then someone has to sacrifice and receive it. <laughs> and that can also be difficult for, for some people. You know, they help and help and help, but if someone tries to help them, it's like, no, no, no. It's interesting to watch that, how that happens sometimes. They say, no, 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 don't, don't help me. Actually, a resistance comes up. They feel uncomfortable. <clears throat> but Donna is also receiving with grace, as Becca pointed out. Being able to receive and rejoice in someone else's good karma is another way to bring up joy. Hmm? What we call mudita, sympathetic joy, or um, being able to empathize with other people's uh, good karma, the results of their good karma. So if someone is being very generous and kind, then like being able to fully receive that without feeling the burden of, oh, now I need to help them, or now they expect me to do something, you know, no strings attached on the receiving end, too. Just receive it completely, openly, with gratitude, rejoicing uh, that other people are making good karma. And then giving becomes this beautiful thing on both ends, both the giving and receiving. And, you know, the devotional side of it. Some people get into it more than others. You can't force devotion, but you can do little things which can stimulate it, maybe. Having a shrine in one's house, uh, it can be a reminder. In the midst of all of our daily activities, you know, if we have a shrine, Buddha image, um, pictures of teachers, Bodhi leaves, whatever. That can be a reminder. Ah, right. Don't worry too much about the details. Don't get too hung up on the petty stuff. Right? The things we aspire to most deeply are, are the things in the Dharma practice. And you know, if you find the chanting that we do pleasant, yeah, even that's a good way to uh, develop some discipline and concentration on a regular basis. Sometimes it's very good for calming down the mind. After we've had a busy day, instead of just sitting down to meditate, you could do 15 minutes of chanting first and then, then go into the meditation.
Today is the last day that I can do some questions. So I better not leave any unanswered. Otherwise, <clears throat> otherwise they'd have to come back next year. <laughs> okay. Dear AC. <laughs> I'm okay with informality. <laughs> That's cool. cool. Could you say a few words about um, Donna? No. <laughs> Could you say a few words about bowing? Significance, meaning. Uh, here. What does that say? That must be written by a doctor. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, it's not just me. Let's see. You say a few words about bowing, significance, meaning, specifically. <laughs> Something uh, come from Buddhism to escape orthodoxy, but now oh, something I something about I initially came to Buddhism to escape orthodoxy, but now I see um, it does have its place. Thanks, exegesis, but a little. Nudge and encouragement in that. Okay. Bowing. I like to bow because it's a way of placing my head low before my highest aspirations. aspirations. Mm -hmm. Typically in Asia, especially, head is considered sacred, high, uh, feet kind of low, uh, impolite, you know. In Thailand, for example, you, uh, you don't go around touching other people's heads unless you know them really well, <clears throat> or their children, and uh, you never, you never point your feet at other people unless you want to get into a fight, right? So they, um, the act of Voluntarily lowering, or lowering one's head to another person or to the Buddha Dhamma and Sangha, you know, or that which represents the Buddha Dhamma and Sangha is a way of showing humility. So essentially, that's what I like about bowing. It's a way of, of showing humility to things which represent our aspirations. In initially, sometimes uh, some of the Western monks at our monastery are really uncomfortable with people bowing to them. Right? They feel okay about bowing to the 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 senior elders, but then sometimes when uh, people would come to the monastery and they bow to the junior monks, they feel really uncomfortable sometimes. As far as saying, well, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> Which was 
you know, not gracefully receiving. <laughs> but you know, it it's when people bow to to us as monks or nuns, they're not bowing to us as individuals. They're bowing to the sangha. They're bowing to what we represent, what the lifestyle represents. They're bowing to uh, the robe. You know, the robe is considered the 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 victory banner of the arhats. You know, the bowing to something much more beyond the individuals. Because often they don't know us individually. They come and bow. The man who ordained with me was another Californian Californian guy from the States and uh, about the same age as me. And <laughs> he was sitting out in front of our meditation hall once in this big group, you know, you know, a couple buses came and uh, all these people flowed out. You know, a large group of people coming to the monastery and he happened to be sitting out in front of the meditation hall and they all came up to him and bowed. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I wish my dad could see this. <laughs> Dear Ajahn, please beware, this is a long note. Okay. Let's let's visualize the primal earth with all of its protein and enzymes. You got that? <laughs> Boiling around. A single cell organism emerges. Let's fast forward to now, now to present day. Okay, that's pretty quick. <laughs> and, and some external intelligence and, and to some external intelligence it would appear that the primal soup defecated, no, that the primal soup differentiated and went on a retreat. Maybe I'm misreading. Not only that, it is talking to itself. It gets worse. What what was one before becomes fragmented. Each fragmented yearning to be one again, but not willing to give up to the fragmentation. Everyone got that? <laughs> Keep that visualization in mind. Okay. Yarajan, thank you for answering all of our questions with such patience. My question is about the similarities between the world's religious traditions. It seems to me that if their inception, no, at their inception, Christianity, Islam, and probably all the rest were uh, formed, 
by spiritual teachers proclaiming the benefits of self-knowledge. Buddhism benefited greatly from Siddhartha Gautama's exceptional spiritual attainments, his 50 years of teachings, 45 actually, (laughs) and the fact that the teachings themselves very clearly inoculate the tradition from becoming about an institution and belief versus the individual and practice. I was raised Christian and my husband is still a devoted Catholic. I often feel disappointed by Christianity's ability to deliver the goods for so many of its followers. But then I read people like Thomas Merton and I think uh, something all something all spiritual practitioners talking about the same thing. Your thoughts? Self-knowledge. Thanks. As I mentioned, the word Dhamma means nature. And as such, nature, or the way things are, is our basic teacher. And so anyone who's paying attention to nature, paying attention to the way things are in life, with uh, uh, a sincere uh, way of looking at things with a sincere heart, with, uh, with a mind that's open and inquisitive of, about learning, you're going to learn similar things. So that's why in all of the contemplative traditions you do find uh, so many similarities. Quote from this Christian mystic sounds remarkably similar to this Buddhist teacher or <coughs> Sufi teacher or Advaita Vedanta teacher. <coughs> for, uh, for a tradition to keep itself alive and vital is difficult because all it takes is one generation kind of losing it or, or not really that interested and then the whole thing just becomes like an empty form. I say this regularly to the traditional Asian Buddhists who come to the monastery because they just assume they're Buddhists. So, well, you're not really Buddhist unless you're practicing it. You have if you, want, if you want Buddhism to carry on to the next generation, then there's a bit of responsibility there. Are all religions the same? Uh, are they all pointing to the same truth? I would say... 
to, I would say it's almost a disservice to the various major religions to say they're all the same or they're all, they're all pointing to the same truth. It's kind of glossing over the differences. Because each of the traditions has unique aspects to it. Interesting, the Dalai Lama often encouraged people uh, to stay within their own religious tradition rather than converting to Buddhism. Although he's quite happy to ordain people if they want to be monks and nuns, that's not a problem. One of the things I liked about Buddhism was that it was just not interested in converting other people. There's like no missionary uh, side of Buddhism. <clears throat> But it's there for anyone who wants to, to pick it up and practice. When I was in college, I majored in comparative religions. And so, yeah, I you know, studied different denominations of Christianity and Judaism and courses in Hinduism and um, there wasn't much in Islam in those days. But for me, for whatever reason, it was Buddhism that really rung true. Um, maybe that was because of past life conditioning. Maybe that was um, present life conditioning. Maybe it was because Buddhism really was better than everything else. <laughs> But for whatever reason, uh, uh, those were the teachings that kind of worked, worked for me, really um, stood out for me, uh, were inspiring to me. And although it's, it's, it's a bit of a balance, you know, integrating... Um, Buddhism into cultures with other religions. Because Buddhism is it's pretty non-aggressive. It doesn't try to trample other religions. Uh, it gets trampled sometimes. <laughs> but it doesn't try to trample other religions. Um, but at the same time, it's important uh, not to kind of blindly lump it all together and say, oh, well, uh, you know, I can, um, what people mean by God is the same thing that what the Buddha was talking about for Nibbana, enlightenment. Um, I mean, unless you start radically redefining those terms, you know, there, there are definitely, you know, considerably, considerable differences. And, uh, I think it's it's important to recognize those as well without saying, well, one is better than the other. But, you know, often the proof is in the pudding, as they say, so um, see what works. That's uh, often the, the best way to, to practice in one's meditation. You see what works. <clears throat> Not that this technique is necessarily better than that technique, but, well, it may work. 
you know, may, uh, for some reason, whatever, you know, the mind can stick with it. You know? And so ultimately, I think that's probably the um, most important thing. And in our modern, multicultural, small world, global village, and I say, you know, the religions are just going to have to learn how to get along together. People being people will usually think, well, mine's a little better than theirs. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, be patient and kind and non-judgmental, but you know, see, we still know ours is kind of a little high, a little better, notch higher. And uh, and that's not, you know, that's not being totally open, but it's a lot better than um, bombing other people's synagogues and churches and and. Uh, Mosques. So, in many ways, that's one thing that um, the people of our generation or our culture can be a model in—a kind of open, open-mindedness. Uh, Because we have so many influences, we're used to having so many different influences, and and uh, in some ways can accommodate uh, the differences. Maybe a bit better than people who have grown up in just one blinkered uh, way of looking at life. And in the end, you know, probably the best thing that we can do is is to to take one path and then develop it deeply there's no use trying to practice all different religions or or even too much comparison and contrast you know which is better what works what not it's like well <clears throat> people are just so different you know? what works for us that's probably Probably one of the best questions. You know? If this works, stick with it, you know? and then uh, if everyone does that in all the different religions, then I think the world would be all right. <coughs> Dear Raj, on occasionally during good meditation sessions. There's a judgment there. (laughs) Occasionally during good meditation sessions, especially on retreats, I will get a tight sensation in the center of my chest around the heart or in the solar plexus. Sometimes it goes away after meditation, but um, in a few instances it sticks around. In the past, imagining this unpleasant sensation as an energy and spreading it through the body resulted in it uh, dissipating. But for some reason it's not going away very easily. Can you recommend a technique to work with this? Mm. Well, when meditation is is good, (laughs) probably it means that there's uh, some uh, uh, continuity of mindfulness happening, some... uh, focused energy 
maybe so a bit more uh, concentration. So that can amplify uh, whatever we're experiencing and also can bring things up to the surface. So um, if there is, let's say, tightness in the gut is often fear-related and uh, tightness in the, around the heart area uh, is often um, can be uh, related to emotional tightness, um, pain, emotional pain, um, hesitancy to really relax one's heart, one's mental heart. So if you start getting uh, tensions in those places, one thing you can do is just to actually breathe into those places. You can try this, for example. If it starts getting tight around the heart area, then you just uh, place your awareness in that area, breathe gently and easy into that area, and then see if that actually kind of loosens it up. The same thing can be done with the gut. You know, if it starts getting tight around the solar plexus, then you know, breathe into that area. And then uh, see if that helps to relax it. If that doesn't work, then look at the attitude with which we're meditating. Maybe we're trying too hard. You know, that's possible. And then things get kind of get launched. Um, if... Uh, if that doesn't work, you can consciously place the energy or place your awareness in other parts of the body. For example, you just start, start paying attention to the sensations in the face, neck, shoulders, back, arms, legs, and that can help to um, move the attention and energy around which can help to break up any uh, knots of tension. <coughs> and if that doesn't work, then just stop meditating. Become a Christian. <laughs> <laughs> See how open-minded I am? <laughs> really ecumenical. <clears throat> Dear Ajahn Chandiko, more formal? Yeah, good. How do you stay concentrated and within and how do you stay concentrated and with within self during your daily within yourself? Yeah. During your daily duties of running a monastery. I find that work is so full of self and it is it is difficult to be in a state where I can truly let go. Thanks. Becca. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, it was anonymous. See, it's the Muslims that are coming up. 
being an abbot of a monastery is really the advanced practice, <clears throat> mm-hmm. or the practice for the foolish. <laughs> um, uh, when I when I look back on, uh, say my first fifteen years or so, very few responsibilities other than to be a good monk, develop meditation. <clears throat> And then, uh, you know, periodically maybe give a Dhamma talk, but uh, then suddenly being in a position of uh, head of a sizable organization, starting from scratch, pretty much building all the buildings, planting the forest, um, Websites, organizational meetings, uh, stupas, eco-villages. All good stuff. Undeniably wonderful things to be involved in. And at the same time, uh, requires paying attention to innumerable details to make it happen fairly smoothly. Even with uh, you know, responsible delegation, there's still just a lot to look after. And it's interesting, you know, in meditation, uh, especially you know, towards uh, the samadhi side, is that <clears throat> it's not to pay attention to any of the the, the details. It's just to pay attention to the to the, the kind of the oneness of everything. <clears throat> the unity of everything, rather than the fragmentation of everything. <clears throat> Whereas uh, being in a position of responsibility, the responsibility is to pay attention to all the details. If you just ignore all the details, um, it's not really taking responsibility. Or not very well. It doesn't work very well. Sometimes you get really good meditators who are lousy managers. You know, just, just like, <laughs> you know, it's like everything's so peaceful, mm-hmm. you know. But, but the toilets burst, you know, the pipes have burst, uh, the bathrooms flooding. Just let go. <laughs> just let go. Well, what, well, what do we do? Who do we call? Worry is a state of mind that arises. <laughs> <clears throat> the the work shed's on fire. <laughs> the Buddha said the sense the five senses are on fire. <laughs> Let's talk about the fire soon. <laughs> so being a manager and a meditator is a tough call. You know, they're almost diametrically opposed. You know, different responsibilities. And uh, it just in, entails a bit more of a mastery where when it's time to deal with business and emails and meetings and outlines and making the necessary phone calls, then, okay, you can do that with the continuity of awareness uh, with energy 
with clarity and then when it's time to meditate knowing that okay <clears throat> now's the time to set all that down uh, I don't have to there's nothing that I have to worry about during this period of time once meditation ends I'm free to go back to worrying if I want to or, or picking up all of the, uh, the details of work <clears throat> now that's easy to say but actually when, when sitting down the challenge is often the best ideas come <laughs> when you're meditating <laughs> and um, it's like okay <clears throat> don't have to worry about any, any of that now responsibility is just to be quiet and peaceful and the thought arises that's a brilliant idea oh that's so important boy I, I better better remember that so what you do is you keep a little notepad next to you <laughs> you write it down and then say okay never mind. forget it it's written down I can like that's what I was doing <laughs> <laughs> so that, that can work I mean it seems it's definitely interrupting the meditation but if you try to tell yourself, oh, I have to remember this, you know, a thought comes up, I have to remember that, it can be even more interrupting. interrupting. So, sometimes, you know, kind of an extreme, but you can actually just write it down, okay, drop it. You know it's there in, in ink on paper. <clears throat> um... The ideal of making everything into meditation is a noble ideal. But as we know, even making meditation into meditation <laughs> is not so easy all the time. Uh, but the, the things that we learn when we're sitting still with our eyes closed or walking back and forth on a simple path, then are things that we can try to the best of our ability to bring into the office, the workplace, um, uh, well, if we're working outside, if we're working with our hands, often it, it translates quite easily, you know, to, uh, um, to be meditating while we're doing something physical, while we're doing more intellectual activities, it can be more of a challenge just to remember you know, body awareness, stay in your body, spending hours at the computer, remember body awareness, maybe just periodically stop, Take a deep breath, and then continue on. So there are little things that we can do to try to keep the continuity going so that it, it becomes more integrated. And then it becomes less and less of a shock, say, going from a retreat into daily life. Go from the chaos of retreat into the peace of looking after your children. <laughs> Here we go. Dear Regarding stream entry, is it possible to have seen the mountain but not recognize it as the mountain? <laughs> um, you mean know, like you turn the corner and you think, 
you know, you, you see Mount McKinley and you say, look, it's Everest. <laughs> <laughs> to, to really have an experience of stream entry, apparently, so they say, it is very obvious. It's undeniable. It's such a major change to the mind. However, it's very easy to think you've seen the mountain when you haven't. Right? Turn a corner and you see a hill in the distance. That's it! <laughs> I see the mountain. It's not quite as big as I thought it might be, but that must be it. That's the mountain. And it's... Uh, you know, we come from Minnesota, so even a little hill looks like a big mountain. <laughs> it's like, wow, it's 500 feet tall. <laughs> um, so it, it's very common to overestimate. And uh, so it's always good to have the attitude of no matter what the insight is, no matter how uh, profound, deep, life-changing that insight is, always say, well, you know, whatever it is, I don't have to put a label on it, and then just keep practicing. As long as we keep practicing without, without you know, identifying with it as a new, this is the new me, this is the new enlightened me, right? That can be a trap. Just shift our our identification onto some inside. Or, um, if we stop practicing, that's a big danger. And it can happen. Uh, someone gets a big insight and they think, that's it, great, uh, now I'm just going to teach everyone. <laughs> now I know, and they're deluded, therefore out of compassion, <laughs> I will help the masses. And these people are usually real pains in the butt. <laughs> and they've overestimated themselves, and they've overestimated their wisdom and the depth of their insight. So, you know, Ajahn Cha would always have the standard of, you know, just it's not sure. Not sure. Whatever happens in your meditation, just you think, oh, that's, this must be jhana. Not sure, you know. This must be Sotapanna, not sure. And in that way, the labels can be a bit of an obstacle. If we attach to the labels and think we have to have to have achieve these landmarks, <clears throat> uh, often it's good just to, to set labels aside and say, whatever the insight, whatever the depth of concentration, whatever happens, you just keep practicing. Dirajan, why are we only allowed cheese and chocolate and juice in the evening? <laughs> this, is, this is clearly a manifestation of the first noble truth. <laughs> Suffering based on desire. The next question, well, here's the actual Second question, why not popcorn? (laughs) (laughs) 
there's just no popcorn loophole. (laughs) We've got a cheese loophole, dark chocolate loophole, juice, which is actually, you know, healthy liquids. Um, Yeah. Popcorn was never used as a medicine in the time of the Buddha. (laughs) However, dark chocolate was a very popular medicine in the time of the Buddha. (laughs) No, I'm joking. But uh, there was, in brief, the reason why cheese is so-called allowable is um, in the time of the Buddha there were substances which were used in medicines, um, uh, things like um, natural honey, which is actually very medicinal, um, and a substance similar to cheese, which was part of many medicines, so um, derived from that. See, medicines were allowable in the afternoon. Not just, well, certain medicines or, or types of medicines were allowed, like only if you're like, really sick, but other types of medicines were allowed if you're feeling kind of run down or lacking in energy in the evening, uh, as long as as long as uh, it's not taken like an evening meal, right? as long as you don't eat so much that it's like having dinner. But if it's just enough to kind of uh, refresh, then they're considered okay. So cheese was one. Um, uh, um, say sugars, molasses, um, kind of give a bit of energy, juice, uh, similar... Uh, Chocolate. I think chocolate was because um, drinking chocolate was allowed. <clears throat> like cocoa was allowed, and then if you dehydrate it, you get dark chocolate. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, those are things which have, have uh, gradually come to help the retreatants survive the eight precepts. <laughs> Dear Ajahn, when a monk's when a monk gets sick at the monastery, do you send him to the doctor? Or doctor comes just curious? Did I read that right? Yeah. If a monk gets sick at the monastery, we just tell them to buck up. <laughs> Don't be a sissy. It's just Vedana. Dukkha Vedana. It's just physical sensations. Pay attention. Watch it with equanimity. Gratitude. Gratitude that you can develop insight from this painful experience. If... Uh, I mean, it just depends on the situation. Um, if uh, yeah, if we become sick, then um, we can go to the hospital, call a doctor. Um, sometimes there are people in our community who are physicians, so they'll come out to the monastery. Dearest Ajahn, Chandigo times 100. <laughs> <laughs> Guess. Okay, I'll go. All right. Final question. It's a tough one. 
what is the capital of South Dakota? <laughs> Bismarck. Bismarck. <laughs> See? That's what I get for Here. That's what I get for trying to cheat. <clears throat> what is the capital of South Dakota? South Dakota is a concept <laughs> that we need not think in terms of specific places. Uh, that's differentiating the primordial soup of <laughs> protons. It's, it's better just to think of South Dakota as a whole. <laughs> Therefore, capital is everywhere. <laughs> That's called, we call that BB. <clears throat> BB. Buddhist bullshit. <laughs> okay.